Hi, my name is Ben. Uh, I head to the 6pm service with my wife Helen and son Levi. Our passage for today is Isaiah 52, beginning at verse 13, and we'll be reading through to the end of chapter 53. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we hold him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the, sh led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. G'day everyone, I'm Ken, and today we're continuing our look at the book of Isaiah. If you are meeting with others as you're watching this, good on you. If you've caught up with someone this week for coffee and prayer, if you've called someone to check on how they're doing or have arranged to share a meal, that's also fantastic. The idea behind what we've called Sunday gatherings is to recognise that ongoing restrictions are still preventing us from meeting as we would all love to. And yet we can still care for one another. How that expresses itself will be different for different people. Some still won't be able to meet in person. 
others are joining together weekly in larger, though still limited groups, to watch the online service together. Can I encourage you that if you haven't already let us know your availability to host or be hosted, even to let us know what you're already doing, that straight after the service, can you please go to the WBC website and fill in the Sunday gatherings form? It's on the WBC online tab, right under the latest sermon, just above the annual report. So you want to, you'll be going there anyway to read that. Now, please understand that this is not a commitment to be locked into one particular location or activity every week till COVID ends. And we are very happy for you to make your own arrangements. But we also want to know what is taking place so that we can ensure that as many people as possible are connecting. If you have filled in the form and haven't been contacted yet, then please do fill it in again. We're not sure if some forms got lost in cyberspace, but we believe everything is working properly now. As I said today, we are continuing our look at Isaiah. Over the last five weeks, we've revisited two themes more than any other, idolatry and the servant of the Lord. And today... We're going to look at the last of the servant songs in Isaiah chapter 52 to 53. Ben has read this well-known passage for us, so let's pray and have a think together about it. Lord God, we thank you so much that as the Holy One, you have revealed yourself to us. You haven't left yourself unclear or us needing to seek you out. You've made yourself known. You've given us your word in a way that we can understand it. And so as we spend some time now thinking about what you're saying to us, we ask that by your spirit you'd work in us, enable us to understand your words. And even more than that, that by your spirit you'd work in us, bringing about the change in us that you want to take place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Home renovation shows are all the rage these days. Whether it's the professionals coming in to do a makeover that, that turns a dump into a castle or regular people who compete to make the unsellable into an object of desire. The popularity of these shows reveals that, that many of us are impressed by the ability of people to, to see beyond the surface mess and dated designs and can do what's needed to transform fixer-uppers into dream homes. And it's not just houses either. There are all manner of surprising transformations that are an essential part of our culture. The ugly duckling that becomes the beautiful swan. The story of Cinderella. The legendary stories from the gold rush of destitute miners stubbing their toe on a rock only to uncover an enormous gold nugget. The million dollar artwork found discarded at the op shop. My granddad collected Australian pennies and, and I can't tell you how many times we went back through his collection to see if that elusive and very valuable 1930 penny was present. Movies like Rain Man and Goodwill Hunting tell of the discovery of hidden geniuses. The theme is played out a thousand different ways. But common to all of them is that people initially assume that something is worthless Yet somehow in the end, the hidden value that was always there is uncovered for all to see. You may have recently seen on the news a car dubbed the Chicken Coupe. 
left in a farm shed in Queensland for over 30 years. This 1973 Ford Falcon was unregistered, filthy, dented, filled with rat poo and was last started way back in 1988. Now, I can't see why anyone would want it. In fact, it's something I assumed you'd have to pay the wreckers to get rid of. But people in the know realised something that I didn't. Because it's so original and so rare, it sold at auction last month for more than $300,000, proving that one man's trash truly is another man's treasure. And I think that's what underlies the popularity of renovation shows, why this theme is so prevalent in our culture. Many of us wish that we had the insight to be able to see the diamond in the rough. We believe that by watching what others do, somehow that will enable us to do likewise. Unfortunately, the reality is that we're more likely to hoard rubbish and throw out treasure than the other way around. And the modern symbol of us realising our mistake is what's been labelled the facepalm. The facepalm vividly expresses the frustration of having overlooked something that we now know in hindsight was incredibly valuable. And in today's passage about the servant of the Lord, we're going to look at the worst facepalm ever. Now, I might be going out on a limb here, but my guess is that not many of you will have read this passage and concluded that's what it's about. But let's look together at the passage in four parts and then you can decide if I'm right or not. It breaks down like this. In chapter 52, verses 13 to 15, we have the spoiler. In chapter 53, verses 1 to 3, jumping to the wrong conclusion. In verses 4 to 9, what did we miss? And then finally, in verses 10 to 12, we find out just how great the servant will be. So let's look firstly at the spoiler in in chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. Spoilers are called that because they spoil the surprise. And it looks at first like that is what Isaiah is doing when he starts this section by telling us the end of the story. But as some movies or books draw us in by revealing a part of the ending, likewise here, Isaiah tells us part of what will happen to get us thinking about our response to the servant. Verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Isaiah tells us that in the end, the servant is going to be recognised as great. Like the winner of the race that stands on the, the highest step of the podium or the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, the servant will be looked up to. But that was not the initial response to the servant, just the opposite. Verse 14, people looked at the servant and were disgusted. And this wasn't just the wrong opinion of the the odd one or two. The logic of verse 14 is that many rejected him and so many will have to take back their words. Even kings will have to shut their mouths because of him, verse 15. This reverses the order that people consider to be normal. Those at the top, those who were looked up to and in power, are caught slandering the lowly servant. And the powerful ones will have to close their mouths in shock when it is revealed how great the servant truly is. 
This brief description gives us some idea of how exalted the servant is going to be in the end, the reversal that is going to take place. But having glimpsed the future of the servant, we return to much humbler beginnings with verses 1 to 3 describing people jumping to, to the wrong conclusion. Verse 1 asks the question, Who has believed our message? To whom has God's strength been revealed? And the implied answer is not very many. People didn't realise the significance of the servant, as is made clear by the reaction to him. We thought that he was like a plant root protruding from a a dry patch of ground, something like an old rusty car with no future. And the reason that nobody appreciated the servant's true value, verse 2, is that like the ugly duckling, the servant was not impressive on the outside. He had no beauty or majesty, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. There's something built into us as humans that automatically appreciates beauty. Advertising and packaging plays on this, knowing that we are more likely to choose the good-looking alternative. We are impressed by a freshly painted house or a new car. We pay more for an established plant with flowers on it than we would for a seedling. And on the outside, the servant just didn't have what we were looking for. Like the proverbial book, The servant was judged by its cover. He was despised and rejected, verse 3, not just by a few, but by all mankind. This is not an ancient example of our modern polarised politics in which a, a leader is vehemently hated by one side and loved just as passionately by the other. The servant's lack of worth was the universal conclusion The opinion of the experts and the uninformed alike was that the servant had no value. And the sting at the end of verse 3 is that this evaluation was also the one made by us. We held him in low esteem. We evaluated him as worthless. We wouldn't even look at him. Such was his experience of suffering and pain. This instinct for us to be drawn to things of beauty also expresses itself in our repulsion from suffering. We don't like to see others in pain, and so because the servant suffered, we turned away from him. Isaiah uses a very clever technique here. At the start of verse 1, it is our message, God's revelation. The obvious reading is for us to assume that we are on God's side amongst those who get it that we are those who are able to see past the externals to the true value of that which was hidden underneath. But by the end of verse 3, we find that we are included among those who rejected the servant. We took the servant at face value and we assumed that he was worthless. So how did we get it so wrong? And, And hang on a second, when did we even make this mistake? What did we miss? The answer to this question revolves around the evaluation of why. Why did God's servant suffer? Verses 3 and 4 tell us that we made a correct observation. The, The servant experienced pain and suffering, which we concluded meant that the servant was being punished by God. But the conclusion we drew from our observation was wrong. We thought that the servant's pain and suffering meant that the servant was being punished by God for something that he had done wrong. Like Job's friends, we saw the outcome and assumed the cause. 
But in doing so, we made a terrible mistake. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is one of the highlights of the book of Isaiah. In fact, one of the high points of the Old Testament and perhaps even the whole Bible. The servant suffers, not on his own behalf, but on the behalf of others. He doesn't deserve to suffer. He chooses to suffer in our place. It's no wonder that when people read this passage, they straight away see its fulfillment in Jesus. Do an image search on Google for this verse. And the vast majority of pictures are related to Jesus' crucifixion. And I agree that we need to end up there. But before we do, we need to ask, what did this passage mean to people in Isaiah's time? To a people contemplating the possibility of exile or or to those in exile desperate to return home? It's possible that this was seen by some as describing King Hezekiah when he was close to death and, and most spectacularly trusted in God and by doing so, helped save Judah. There's a very slim possibility that that some did read it as a prophecy of a suffering Messiah to come. But given the disciples' reaction when Jesus told them that he was going to suffer, I think it's highly unlikely that many, if any, held to this interpretation. More likely, God's people read these verses and assumed that what was written there was written about them. A lamb or a goat or a bull being sacrificed for sin was familiar to all Israel. And it would have been easy to take the concept of sacrifice and apply it to their own situation. They hadn't literally died, but the life they knew had been taken from them. To be an exile, a displaced person, a landless refugee was a very real suffering, which some, no doubt believed, was undeserved. Others had done the crime, and yet they were doing the time. Now, neither would it have been much of a stretch for the prophets to see these words as written about themselves. No doubt Isaiah himself deeply resonated with the words of verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So these words perfectly describe how Isaiah was treated because he continued to faithfully speak God's word to a people that didn't want to hear it. You can imagine him walking along the streets of Jerusalem and people literally turning away from him, whispering to one another about that grumpy old hermit that never has anything nice to say. It must have been heartbreaking to speak God's word and as a result, be rejected by God's people. And while these verses do apply at one level to Israel in exile and and to the prophets, how much more do they apply to Jesus? How perfect a description of Jesus' crucifixion is verse 5. The verses that follow further describe the events surrounding the crucifixion. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted and yet he didn't talk back. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Verse 9, 
He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. All of these things describe exactly what happened to Jesus. But verse 5 in particular gets to the very heart of how God saves his people. Let's read it again. Verse 5. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. While this verse was written centuries before the event, it perfectly captures what happened when Jesus died. Even more than a description, it explains the meaning of what took place. Jesus' death wasn't merely an example for us to emulate. It wasn't an unfortunate accident or evil triumphing over good. It was an intentional substitution by which someone who didn't deserve to suffer suffered on behalf of people who did. That's why we call Jesus' death substitutionary atonement. It's a fancy theological title, but it means that Jesus pays the fine that we incurred. Jesus receives the punishment that we deserved. And so it is rightly considered incredibly good news. But we can't miss the other side of the coin that leads to the need for the good news. In the midst of verses which so clearly describe Jesus' gracious act, we mustn't miss the accompanying clear descriptions that are also here of us. For any person even vaguely familiar with Colin Buchanan, it's, it's hard to read verse 6 without adding in the ba-ba-do-ba-ba from his famous kids' song. And yet there is a profound truth in this verse that we would normally choose to avoid rather than sing about. Verse 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. It was our iniquity, our unholiness, our not meeting God's standards that led to the death of his servant. The blame was ours. Verse 4 confirms that he took our infirmities. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Verse 8. The substitution made by the servant is needed because we didn't live as God requires. Death is what we deserve for the way that we chose to live. And so when we turned our faces from Jesus' suffering, we were right to cringe at it. So long as we realised that we were actually turning away from the consequences that we deserve. We so easily laugh at Isaiah's portrayal of the stupidity of idolatry that people would use one end of the log to, to light a fire and bake bread while using the other end as the material from which to carve an idol. And then we turn around and do exactly the same thing. Our modern idols may not be placed on a shelf, but they are no less honoured. Workaholism is not a weakness. It is rebellion against a good God who promises to provide for his children. Needlessly accumulating possessions is, is not merely going with the flow of our culture. It is to turn our backs on what God says is good. 
finding our identity in our sport or how we look, the credentials we've gained, how many likes we've got on Facebook or Instagram, is to snub our nose at God and and defiantly say that I know better than you. Way back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were the first to doubt that God had given them what is best. And ever since, we have been drawn to alternatives that promise to to more successfully provide fulfilment and happiness. Rather than taking God at his word, that as creator, he knows what's best for us, we turn to every alternative that there is. Just like Israel, we like to think that we trust in God. But alongside of God, Christians can and do serve powerless alternatives to God. We act as if created things can give us what we want, that we will be fulfilled if we just have that certain experience, if we can just own that latest thing. Yet they are all dead ends, promising everything but giving nothing. Sin is sneaky. It creeps so easily into everything that we do. Even things that start outright, providing for our family, saving for the future, using our skills and gifts, can develop twisted motivation over time. We encourage our kids in a sport, in academic achievements or learning a musical instrument. And before we know it, our identity as a parent is wrapped up in their performance rather than in how much our kids love Jesus. Our ability to turn good things into God's knows no limit. And I think our normal reaction is to deny it or to justify our behaviour. Everybody does it. That's just what we need to do to live in our world, we reason. But this high point of the Old Testament points the finger squarely at each of us and says that because of our choice to turn from God's way, somebody had to die. We are very quick to demand justice in other areas, the Black Lives Matter movement or hashtag Me Too. The indignation at racism and sexism in sport all flow from something really good deep within us that that wants things to be fair, for people to be treated as they deserve. We are outraged at instances of blatant injustice when CEOs pay themselves enormous bonuses while the employees are laid off. But we balk at the idea that our daily choices deserve death. What's the big deal about looking at some pictures on the internet? The death penalty for gossiping behind someone's back, that's ridiculous. Oh, well, I I accept that greed, pride and unforgiveness are, are rough edges that I need to work on. But to suggest that my short fuse with my kids earns the death penalty sounds just a tad excessive, don't you think? which shows that God cares about justice even more than we do. And it also makes verses 10 to 12 so important because Jesus' death on our behalf is not the end. The final section in verses 10 to 12 develops a spoiler we open the passage with. It shows just how great the servant will be. The normal evaluation of someone receiving the death penalty is that their ending is exactly that, the end. But the death of the servant of the Lord is different. Hints are given that the servant's death is not the end, but rather the beginning of the recognising of his greatness. Verse 10, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Verse 11, 
after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. Verse 12, he will be given a portion among the great because he poured out his life unto death. When we've watched a movie and seen the plot twist, when we've heard the story of how things worked out, we can't go back to the naive understanding we had before knowing the outcome. And knowing that Jesus rose from the dead, we are right to see these verses as being fulfilled in him. Jesus didn't stay dead, but instead suffered and then rose that others would have life. And yet the reason I think it's worth thinking in depth about what these verses meant to Israelite in Isaiah's time is that it helps us to think about what else they mean for us now. Ultimately, these verses are about Jesus' death and resurrection. Most completely fulfilled, they mean that we have a perfect one who is willing to suffer in the place of imperfect ones. That chapter 52 verse 13's prophecy that the servant would be raised and lifted up would firstly be fulfilled by Jesus being lifted up on a cross. And having paid the price for our imperfection, he is exalted to the highest place. Others will eventually have to face palm for their mistaken evaluation of Jesus. The Bible uses slightly nicer terminology. First, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. It is repeated in Romans 14:11, and again in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. All people will eventually realize that they misjudged the servant. But the New Testament also shows that all of us who have accepted Jesus as our substitute, are right to understand ourselves as the servant of the Lord too. And so these verses also describe how the world will evaluate us using inadequate superficial criteria. It teaches us to expect persecution and ridicule, and we are not to despair or soften our stance. It tells us that our own death is not the end but rather the beginning of glorification. As we understand how the ultimate servant was treated, we are given insight into what we as servants can expect to experience in our lifetime. There is a purpose given to all that we do. We we don't live for ourselves or, or even for our families. We are God's servant. And yet, as we fulfill that role, People will assume that our teaching and even we are worthless. But don't worry. In the end, the hidden value that was always there is going to be uncovered for all to see. You may not be a 1973 Ford Falcon, but God knows the exalted position he has destined for you. And all of the creation is waiting with bated breath for God's children to be revealed. You may currently be a diamond in the rough, but the important thing is that as far as God's concerned, you are still a diamond. Judah in exile should have been confident that God would fulfill his word. And having seen it fulfilled in Jesus, we can be even more confident that his word about his servants will be fulfilled. Let's pray. Lord God, Holy One, we are so grateful that 
in your holiness, you didn't just reject us, but you provided the substitute for us, that your son, the perfect one, came and died in our place. Lord, there's so much that we are grateful for, and yet we recognise that the way that he was treated is also the way that when we follow him, we will be treated. And so please encourage us by these words to, to recognise that in what you've done for us, we can also have great confidence to, to put up with the things that take place now in this lifetime. Help us to be people that remain faithful to your word, who, who choose to turn away from sin, who continue to be your spokespeople, uh, to speak this message of great hope into a world that desperately needs it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.